You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. This is the best week ever. I know Pastor Keith feels the same thing. He often says that every time of this year, this time of year. But I love Palm Sunday because for me, it's Easter Eve. How many love Christmas Eve? I, I love it because it's right on the edge of something exciting and fun. I love that. Right on the edge of that. It's anticipation towards what we're looking for. And of course, this Easter week is fantastic. Good Friday, we're going to pause at the foot of the cross. We're going to remember the death and sacrificial death of Jesus and what he bore for us. And Pastor Keith has a great message, 9.30, 11.15 a.m. Friday, lots of great worship. And then Easter Sunday, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Without that, we don't have a Christianity. And so we're going to talk about what does the Bible not only say, but what do historical records say about the resurrection? How can we have confidence in it? Because our, it affects our lives daily. It's so essential and so important to who we are as followers of Jesus. So one of the things I love about Easter is I love that Easter is like, surprise! I mean, when you think of Easter week, his disciples were shocked, surprised that he died. They didn't anticipate it. They weren't looking for it. I mean, the prophets foretold it. Jesus mentioned it, but they didn't see it coming. And then three days later, whoa, surprise. All of a sudden, the religious leaders, everyone's shocked. Because what happened? Well, death couldn't hold them. The grave couldn't keep them. It's a surprise. So I, are you the type of person that loves surprises? Well, this week I went around and surprised some of the staff. Watch the screens. Are you the type of person that likes to be surprised? Listen, that first Easter, that was a surprise. I'm going to take a few minutes and maybe surprise some of the staff around here. I mean, not, not scare them, surprise them. Oh my god! Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> you got me. For what? <laughs> Happy Easter. Happy Easter, man. <laughs> we used to have a good children's pastor in this church, but she no longer works here. As of, what, 10 seconds ago. <laughs> Uh, we had so much fun. And listen, if you uh, already get the lead pastor email, uh, if you don't, you should. Every second week it comes. There's an extended version. Uh, pastor Dan, Winita, our great receptionist, a number of others get caught up in the Easter spirit. I, I, all I was doing, I wasn't, that was just helping them. It was helping them, just like Stephanie helped me. And when she used to work on staff here, she's helped me a moment ago, just get in the Easter spirit. There's a surprise around it. Now, what we're looking at today, Ryan read from Matthew chapter 21. If you have a Bible, turn there. Because in Matthew 21, it's the events that lead up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday morning. And every moment, every event that happens as Jesus enters into Jerusalem is very symbolic and very significant. Now, 
The, the idea of what often Christians will call this the week of triumphal entry, or they call this Palm Sunday. Now, it's not because we palmed, high-fived each other, but because John's gospel tells us that they waved palm branches when, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, because he was coming not as... Uh, there are many words we use to describe Jesus. Savior, uh, the Son of God, Messiah... Christ, which means anointed one, it's really the Greek version of the word uh, Messiah, but he's coming in on this occasion in Matthew 21 as a king, a triumphal entry into Jerusalem as a king. But there are three words I'm going to give you that describe the type of king Jesus is, and it helps us understand how do we relate to Jesus. See, Jesus comes as a confrontational king confrontational king. I mean, uh, we need to rewind the tape a little bit for you to see this in the text, but let me start with, if you've never read the Gospels, and those are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you're new, and you're trying to figure out who Jesus is, really, start reading one of those, because the Gospels contain the account of Jesus' life, his teaching, and the events surrounding his death and resurrection. I mean, it's must-reading for someone who's a follower of Jesus, or is trying to discover if Jesus is God. But in the Gospels, up until this point in Matthew 21, you'll remember Jesus did lots of miracles. He healed people. He set them free from demonic oppression. He, he did miraculous signs and wonders. And every time he did, what did he do? He always said, shh, don't tell anyone. It's amazing. He heals people and he says, don't go around telling people. Why? Why was Jesus so reticent of allowing people to proclaim who he was? If they proclaimed he was Messiah, it would be, oh, keep this quiet. Don't tell people I did this. Why? Because he knew it would put, the more people went around proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God or Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior that's coming to redeem and liberate this Israel from oppression, the more he did it, it would put pressure on the civic and religious leaders to stop him. They would have to. They wouldn't have a choice. And they'd either stop him by imprisoning him or killing him. And Jesus, up until this point, had more things to teach and more ministry to be done. So he didn't allow them. He kept keeping it hush-hush. But everything changes here. Absolutely everything changes in the way Jesus operates his ministry. In fact, you can see it in the previous chapter, in Matthew chapter 20. Here's what's happening. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem in the story because it's Passover. The biggest celebration and festival in the Jewish uh, world at that time. And Passover celebrated when God delivered his people from Egypt. So everyone's excited. There's a large crowd traveling with Jesus to Jerusalem, which would not be uncommon. There were large crowds that did the pilgrimage to Jerusalem at this time. But what happens is unique in chapter 20. There's two blind men on the side of the road, and they hear Jesus coming, and Jesus is going by with a big crowd, and they shout out, Son of David! Somebody just woke up. Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, we hear that, and we think, okay, Son of David, if you've been in church, you're probably thinking, is that King David? Well, that is the connection. But that was a title. Every Jewish person would know exactly what they were saying in the crowd. Son of David meant Messiah. It meant Savior. It meant that he is the anointed one. 
And here's the interesting thing. They shout out, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus responds to them amidst the crowd and the busyness and their progress towards Jerusalem. He pauses and he says, what do you want from me? And of course, they want to be healed. And he heals them, not in private, but in public before this big crowd headed into Jerusalem. Now, this would have been whiplash for the disciples. Because they've been around Jesus. He's done amazing things. He, they've heard people proclaim things about him. And they've watched Jesus with great consistency say, shh, 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 don't, don't tell anyone. And then all of a sudden, these two blind men shout out, ultimate king, God of the universe, Messiah. And he says, yes, it is as you say. And then to top it all off, he heals two blind men during Passover on the way to Jerusalem. Friends, Jesus is about to go viral in this moment. This is amazing. The crowd that was already filled with expectancy and they're walking with this great teacher and they've heard rumors of his healing and his miraculous signs and wonders. All of a sudden, they hear him accept the moniker of Messiah and he heals two blind men on the road. And it doesn't end there. He decides to ride into Jerusalem. People will walk in. He's going to ride in. Only kings rode in in a victorious processional. And Jesus decides to ride in on a donkey. Now, John chapter 12 tells us at this point, people must have run ahead. Because people are coming out of Jerusalem now. They're flooding out of Jerusalem to join his procession. And they all start shouting. And they all start this big cheer. And the cheer they're saying is the word Hosanna. Which doesn't mean hooray or yippee. It means save us. It's a really interesting word. Because it has a sense of celebration and desperation all in it at once. They need saving. They need saving from the Romans. They need saving from the powers that are oppressing them and manipulating them, the systemic things that keep some of them in poverty, that keep them oppressed and power over them. They need saving, and so they shout, save us, but there's a sense of celebration. It wouldn't be unlike if, if someone had a heart attack and a cardiologist just happened to walk through the door and you shout out, Hosanna. Like, there's relief, there's excitement that you know someone qualified that can actually change the situation, just walk through the door. But there's also desperation, like, yeah, hey, oh, oh my, amazing, get to work. There, you know, we're, something's wrong here. That's the type of buzz that's going on as he walks into Jerusalem. And then if you know the story, we read the rest of it, Ryan read the rest of it. He goes to the temple. And he goes to the temple and he turns over the money changers' tables. And he says, my house shouldn't be like this. My house? The only one that has the right to enter a home and begin to rearrange the furniture is the owner. Jesus is being very clear on this Palm Sunday. He's the man. He is who people have thought he is. He is the Messiah. He is the triumphal king. And he's entering into his kingdom. This is an amazing moment, but here's what's happening. This is why I say he's a confrontational king. He is forcing the religious leaders and the civic leaders. He is forcing them to make a decision. 
He is forcing them. He's basically saying, either crown me or kill me. You don't have a choice. You're going to have to deal with me. You can't ignore me at this point. I mean, it is palatable. The buzz going through Jerusalem was amazing at this time. This is the Savior coming. This is the Messiah, the one that will liberate Israel, the one that will set us free, the one that's come to rescue us. And it's being forced. He's healed these two blind men. He's come into the temple and he said, this is my house. He is forcing them to crown him or kill him. But you cannot ignore me. You need to either accept me and give me everything or reject me and give me nothing. You need to either crown me or you better kill me. This is an amazing change. This is a, a pivotal change in this moment. Here's the thing about the Gospels when you read Jesus' interactions even with others. It spoke centuries ago, but it speaks to us today. How does this apply to your life and my life? the confrontational nature of our king. Here's the truth about Jesus and why I think, if we're going to give him some space here, why religious leaders and civic leaders struggled with him so much. I, I saw something that I've never seen before when I've read this story hundreds of times. This is why I love the Bible. Just things pop out at you. But I read a great author that helped me understand a little bit, and he made this statement. He said this, Jesus was absolutely incredibly humble, but not modest. So the religious leaders and civic leaders, they've never encountered anyone like Jesus. I mean, anyone that we know that's humble is always modest, right? And anyone who's immodest is seldom humble or gentle. But Jesus is 100%. He's so humble, and yet he's not modest. And this was difficult for the religious leaders. Let me give you an illustration. Jesus was so sweet, so humble. He was so sweet, tender, and gentle to people who are marginalized in that culture. He was gentle and tender to the children. He was so sweet and gentle and appropriate with the women. He was so sweet to the prostitute and the leper and tender towards them. He was so sweet to people of other nationalities and races that he embraced them. I mean, he's completely humble. And if he had stayed in that lane, the religious leaders and the civic leaders, they'd be okay with Jesus. I mean, he challenged their theology. He didn't, they didn't like who he was touching. He's touching lepers. He didn't like what he was doing. But if he stayed in that lane, he was likable. He was palatable. But Jesus was also incredibly immodest. He went around saying things like this. Before Abraham, I was. I will return and I will judge this world, he says. Whoa, who do you think you are? I am the power behind the universe. I saw Lucifer fall from heaven. I mean, to be modest is to be bashful, to not be bold or forward, is to have a moderate estimation of your own merit or achievements. But see, Jesus was, was not modest because he spoke truth of himself. This was who he was. And so the religious leaders, the politicians at the time, they're forced to make a decision. Do we crown him or do we kill them? See, basically what it's saying is that Jesus is saying, you either give me everything or you silence me, but I will not only be liked. Jesus takes that away from us. Even in 2018, 
Here's the thing. When we make Jesus really, really nice, it allows us to be around Jesus, but not in a committed relationship with Jesus. So when I was growing up in the church I grew up in, but it was kind of probably the era I grew up in, there was an interesting vein of theology that's so important, but we don't talk about it as much. And, you know, just bear with me for a moment. It was called the Lordship of Christ. The Lordship of Christ. Theologians would write about it. Now, lordship is kind of an old word, but it's basically that God would be Lord over all your life. So, in other words, I heard a female communicator once use this illustration. I've never forgotten it. Help me understand the lordship of Christ and how it applies to my life. She used this illustration. I'm going to use it with you. Let's imagine I come to your place. I show up at your door and I knock. For some of you, that might be okay news. For some of you, you'd be like, huh. But either way, I'm there. And you open the door, and I say, hello. You say, hello, who are you? I say, my name is Jonathan Smith. And you pause for a few minutes, and you look at me, and you say, well, Jonathan can come in, but Smith cannot. (laughs) Now, I got a problem. I got a problem because I don't have a part of me that is Jonathan and a part of me that is Smith. I can't take Smith and leave him outside and take Jonathan and move him inside. In other words, I'd have to say to you, you either have all of me or none of me. And that is the condition of the Lordship of Christ. And this is what's hard for us when we make Jesus just nice. We can ask Jesus to be our Savior, but I don't want you to be my Lord. We want Jesus to be our helper, but stay out king. And here's the hard part and the confrontational part of who Jesus is. He doesn't want to only be liked. He wants to be loved and worshipped, or he wants us to flee from him. This is difficult. This is challenging. He wants everything. You have to make him the very center of your life. You have to give him authority over all the areas of your life. It comes to a place of surrender where you look and you can't say, I'll obey this, but not that. It's all of him or nothing. And that's challenging. Now, thank God for his grace that allows us. He knows that our maturity, especially when it gives to giving him authority in our life, some of that happens over time as we have fresh moments of surrender, and we give them more of our life. Listen, have you ever been in a a relationship with someone and you knew they were holding out from you? You know, I I, I don't want to generalize, but I often feel like uh, women are, they're, they're looking for like all of you guy, not just the part of you that shows up every once in a while. That's why they're always asking, at least my wife is always asking, what are you thinking? I, I, I don't know. You tell me and I'll have a thought. <laughs> but you know, what, what, what's that all about? It's, it's a sense of like, I want all of you, not, not just part of you. Now, we do that in limited ways with humans, and rightfully so often, because there's trust issues. There's also issues of authority. There's all kinds of things we struggle with in our brokenness. And often we take that and we put it on our relationship with God. But Jesus says, confrontationally says, I, won't, I, don't, I didn't come just to be liked by you. I came to be loved by you, worshipped by you, and obeyed. That's what I came for. And you can have all of me, 
or you'd have none of me. But let's not play this game. Let's not play this game. See, there's another, though, adjective that describes this type of king that enters Jerusalem during this Passover season. It's not just a confrontational king. He's a counterintuitive king. His kingdom works very different from our kingdom. It's very counterintuitive. In fact, you know, I love how a professor from Duke University, he was talking about this passage, and he was reflecting on the fact that Jesus rode in on a, a donkey, just as Ryan read a few minutes ago. He rode in on a donkey, which is held in stark contrast to how other kings entered Jerusalem when they conquered when they came in triumphantly. In fact, he went back 200 years before a man named Simon Maccabeus went into Jerusalem. He had freed Israel from a foreign oppressor and he rode into, into Jerusalem on a fearsome war horse in victorious stature. And the people of Israel and the people of Jerusalem in that day, they, wove, they waved palm branches. Because palm branches had a prophetic connection to the Old Testament. I'll show you that later. So they came in. He came in triumphantly. He came in in power. He came in riding on a horse. And this professor reflecting on this says, and yet the triumphal entry of Jesus appears to be a parody of the entry of kings and armies. Victors in battles never rode into their conquering cities on donkeys. Rather, on fearsome war horses. But this king does not and will not triumph through force of arms. Did you notice what type of donkey he rode in on? There are two donkeys in the story. And Jesus rides in on the colt, the young donkey, the untrained donkey. He couldn't have made it more comical. He didn't even ride in on a, a full-scale donkey. He rode in on the smaller-scale donkey. As far away from the image of a victorious king coming in and powerfully conquering and taking his rightful place of authority, as far away from that, why? Part of it was fulfilling what the prophets had said on days gone by. But it's revealing something about Jesus. Just like the confrontational side does, so does the counterintuitive side. This seems incredibly counterintuitive, but Jesus comes as king not to take power and kill, but by losing power and dying. It is counterintuitive. Jesus conquered death and he broke the back of it. And he conquered sin. He crushed the back of the power of sin in people's lives. And he didn't do it by taking power and killing, because that's how the world does it. No, no, no. He did it by losing power, becoming weak, and dying. Friends, this has implications for us. This means everyone who's a follower of Jesus, we follow in the pathway of salvation, not by works, not by our own strengths, not by all the good things we've done, but we come in weakness. We come acknowledging our need. The gospel says this. You've heard this many times from this stage. The gospel says the humble, those who are in touch with the fact that they need a savior are in, and the proud, those who think that they've got it, they're out. 
It is those of us who recognize it's not strengths that save us. It is precisely our weakness, and Jesus makes up the difference. Friends, are you in touch with your need? I know you're in touch with needs. And I know if I asked, everybody has needs. You know, that's the unique thing about this world. And when you see it, it's natural. It's human tendency. This is how we operate. When the world has a catastrophe, often churches are filled. Why? People are scared. People are threatened. They know they have a need. I mean, I've been pastoring for 25 years, and over 25 years, I've noticed that when people get a bad diagnosis from the doctors, they really need God. And they need the pastor more. I mean, Pastor Keith, in your 75 years of pastoring, you've probably noticed that a few times too, <laughs> along the way, right? Yeah, a few times along the way. I, I'm joking, if you're new here, it's 73 years. It says, uh, it's not quite that. But you know what's amazing though? It's amazing once we get out from under the chronic diagnosis. Maybe, maybe the diagnosis is found false or maybe we respond well to the medication or whatever it is. All of a sudden, we walk around as if we aren't still terminal. But the Bible says this, every one of us in this room is terminal. We don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know what. But we're all terminal. Why? Well, sin did that. Sin made it that every one of us has an expiry date. One out of one Christians, one out of one humans, they all die. And we walk around with a confidence that's really false. And we feel like we know what our need is, though. We're in touch with our need. We feel like we go to God with our need. God, if I had this person in my life, then that's what I really need. If I got this promotion at work, that's what I really need. If you just took care of this financial need, everything would be better. If you just took care of this, I know what I need. I know what I need, God. So just, Hosanna, get busy. Save me. Do what I need. See, the people on Palm Sunday, they had needs. See, what they thought they needed was they thought they needed a savior that would bring judgment down on the evil oppressors, that would bring judgment down on those that were oppressing others and causing harms to others. That's what they, they thought they needed. I mean, that's what we're singing Hosanna for. We are singing, God, save us from those evil oppressors. But God knew they needed not someone to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. See, God knew what Paul so well says that every human has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of God's glory. Everyone in this room and everyone in the entire history of humanity, even the best of us, even the cleanest of us, we all needed somebody that would step in and bear the judgment that was due us. See, we thought we needed this. God knew we needed this. They thought they needed the Romans to be free of them because it was easy to see they were the scourge of the world. They were the dominant empire. They were taxing them into oblivion. They were controlling their system. They were controlling their nation. We need that. And when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem that day, they thought he's going to do it, just like Simon Maccabeus. He's going to deliver us from the Romans. But God knew they needed delivery from a far worse oppressor. Pardon for sins and a peace that endureth. See, here's the interesting truth about God. 
And this is where sometimes we struggle. It's so counterintuitive. We think we know what we need, and God knows exactly what we need. And here's the difference. Between, listen, I believe this, friends. God always exceeds our expectations in the long run. But in the short run, it can be a little confusing. We have to fill the gap with something called trust in the middle of that. See, I think, though, it's true of every human being in this, world, in this room. We all need the same things, don't we? We do need a forgiver, a savior. I believe that. Every human does. Every one of us, though, needs acceptance. Some people struggle to find acceptance in this world, and they'll go to as deep and dark places as they need to feel acceptance. Every human being needs the sense of approval in their life, that someone approves of them. And it's not attached to anything or conditional in life. We all crave that in our lives. Here's the thing that Palm Sunday is unique in. I think this story is incredible and in how it shows the fickleness of human celebrity. I was reflecting on this last three days when Pastor Keith and I were just talking about it. How people, we, we put them up on pedestals and when we find out they have clay feet, we are so quick to tear them all down. Uh, younger people, and I'm in, I, young people like myself and, and others. You know, that's the power of social media that's, that's not helpful. You could be searching for approval in people instead of from God. And people are fickle. Those same crowds that shout at Hosanna, days later, days later, same people. It wasn't a large city. Same people, maybe not all the same, but very many of them the same. They shout, Hosanna, save us. You're amazing. And then they crucify him. Crucify him. The fickleness of human nature. You can crave for celebrity and to be noticed in this world. And your skills and abilities might do that. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as it's not filling the approval need inside of you. Because as soon as you climb that mountain, there are always people trying to pull you right back down. But the approval of God, wow. See, God says different things about you, friends. And we struggle with this a little bit because religion will say God's approval of you is always attached to your behavior. Now, our behavior, if we love Jesus, we begin to behave differently. But we have human moments, and Pastor Dr. Van talked well about this in our Holy Spirit series when he talked about being only human. Don't tell him I, I gave him credit, though. But here's what Jesus says about people who are in Christ. He says this. However those the Father has given me come to me, and I will never reject them. Never. He says things like this. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and say it with me, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them away from me. Says things like this, and I am certain that God, who began a good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Don't you love that, friends? He's not done with you. Every day he's building into you his kingdom, every day he's crafting you into his image. Goes on to say this, and I'm convinced 
that, say it with me, that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell itself can separate us from God's love. Just incredible. He goes on, I love this. Say this out loud with me if you would. I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. If you've had people who have abandoned you in life, Friends, don't put your junk on God. He's not like them. He is not like them. He goes on to say things like this. Even if my father and mother abandoned me, this is said of God, the Lord will hold me close. And he goes on to say, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures. Oh, it's not fair weather, is it? He said this. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth. And now he loved them to the very end. Friends, you can build a life on that. You can build a life. Look for God's approval. Not the approval of man. It's fickle. It's all over the place. Jesus even experienced that. But the approval of God is steadfast and faithful. He looks on us and he sees even the worst of us. And I, uh, Pastor Key said this years ago and I've never forgotten it. You know, there's not a moment that God sometimes is shocked when he sees some skeleton in your closet. He knew it was there. And he still loved you. He still welcomed you in. Friends, uh, on the way out today, you're going to receive a card with all of those Bible verses on it. As you head into the Easter week, you meditate on God's view of you, how he sees you, and how he's positioned himself in your life. So these scriptures remind us that, that we are affirmed in God, but the, but, but the counterintuitive nature of how God operates, often it speaks of on Palm Sunday, the mismatched expectations but what, between what we think we need from God and what God provides. We think we need and what God actually provides in our life and I do believe God exceeds our expectations in the long run. One theologian said it so much better than me when he said, God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. Friends, if you can anchor that truth in your heart, you'll know how to live a contented life. You'll know how to live a non-anxious life. If you recognize that God always gives you what you would have asked for if you had known what he actually knows. Friends, we come to God with our needs, and, and good, we should. We always ask for far less than what he wants to do. God, fix, fix my relationship. God, fix our finances. God, fix my body. And God wants to do infinitely more than that. You can trust him. He's a confrontational king. He's a counterintuitive king. And here's the last one. He's a coming king. So this whole passage is prophetic in nature because it's already pointing to the moment when Jesus will come again. And it will look very different than how he rode into Jerusalem on that day. See, there's two passages in here in Jesus' second coming. See, they thought that Jesus was coming to end all injustice and end all suffering, but he wasn't. 
That first moment when he went into Jerusalem to give his life on Good Friday, to be raised from the grave on Easter Sunday, he wasn't doing that to end all justice at that time. He was doing that to put us right with God. So that when he comes again to end all injustice, we who are now clothed in Christ's righteousness won't get swept up with the end of evil. So there's two prophetic images here. The first is those palm branches. The palm branches that they waved in celebration of the coming king, triumphantly going into, uh, into Jerusalem that day, it has its roots in a prophecy by the prophet Elijah, who said, or the prophet Isaiah, I'm sorry, who said, when the coming king would come, the Messiah, he said this, you will have joy and peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song and the trees of the fields will clap their hands. It's the tree branches clapping their hands, a prophetic foretelling that when Jesus comes, all evil will end and this world will be put back into the way it should be. No more decay, no more death, no more disintegration, no more sickness. It ends. It ends. And everything is put back into harmony again. And the second imagery that foretells the second coming is the donkey. <laughs> he won't be coming back on a donkey the next time. It says in Scripture he'll be riding a horse. <laughs> a triumphant king. But did you notice it in the text? How many have ever ridden a horse before here? Just put your hands up. I'm interested in knowing. Okay. Quite a few. How many have ever ridden a donkey before? And who are you people? Like I, every service, there's all of these donkey riders and I'm just like, wow, like that's incredible. I'd I want to know what's going on there. If you've ever ridden a horse or <laughs> ridden a donkey, uh, unless you, maybe you're in an Easter play. Was that it? Maybe, maybe you played Jesus in the Easter play. I don't know. Pastor Keith, who trained horses for years, he'd know this. You can't just jump on a young colt. They need to be broken first. But Jesus does. He gets on this cult, and the master of the universe who is able to calm the waters and the seas, this donkey knows who his master is. You can't get on an unbroken cult, and you can't even get on a normal broken one and walk into a crowd that's yelling. You know, fight or flight. That thing is out of there. But this animal calmly submits to his master. And it is foretelling of a different era, friends. As bad as this world can get, as crazy as things seem to get in this world, as confusing as things seem to get, one day, one day the prophet Isaiah says, in that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leper will lie down and the baby goat the calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. And that day, God cares about this world. He cares about every human being in it. And the gift of Palm Sunday and the gift of this Easter week is it's confrontational. It gives us an opportunity to choose who we'll serve. 
It is counterintuitive. We don't come with our strengths and all of our awards and, oh, good works and all the good stuff we've done. No, we come with our weakness and our need. Anyone is qualified. Anyone can come. And we come and we allow God to fill our hearts with hope because this world can be upside down and weird and strange and troubling and you can feel filled with anxiety just watching the news. But you know something that a lot of other people don't know. You know one day. One day, everything gets changed. In a twinkling of an eye, his kingdom ushers in and all evil ends. What a glorious day that'll be. Let's pray. Father, Thank you. Thank you for allowing your one and only son to be broken. For allowing him to come to earth. For allowing him to suffer. I know it must have broken your heart to watch your son hang there. And let, and, but you let it happen. And you let the, the wrath of, of God, justifiable wrath of God to rest on him. He bore our judgment for our sins, for our iniquities. And he bore it and it separated him from you. And he was put into the grave. And God, we are so thankful that he didn't stay there. And three days later, Jesus rose and he broke death. He just broke it. And he broke the power of sin that controlled us. And we are unable to control and stop ourselves from doing stuff. But he broke the power of sin in that moment. He did the impossible. And now he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for all of us in this room in this moment. And your spirit is here. So Holy Spirit. And friends, this would be a prayer that if your heart's there, I'd invite you to say it with me. Because all week when I was praying over this message, I kept, just kept hearing that word, surrender. Surrender. So God, we surrender. We crown you king over our lives over our hearts. We crown you king over our future that we keep trying to control and we have trouble trusting you with. We crown you king over it. We crown you king over those areas of our lives that have not come under your authority. We crown you king. And God, we say this, we die to self so that more of you can rise up inside of us. Friends, if this is new to you, but you're hearing the message of Jesus and what he did for every human being, and if you're in touch with your need that you need a Savior, here's a good place to start. Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me for all of the things that I've done that have broken my relationship with you. Forgive me for all the things that I've done that have hurt others around me. And forgive me for those moments that I've even broken myself. God, I want you, I'd invite you to fill me with your spirit today. Make me brand new. I crown you king 
over my life. I come under your authority and I ask you as I head into this Easter week to make yourself more real to me with each passing day. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.